Matthew 5:43 to 48. So the title of the reading is Love for Enemies. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thank you, Dee. So we just, um, before we're kicking off to the, in the main part of this year, we're doing a brief series on love. And the first sermon was um, God's love for us. And then the second uh, sermon was our love for God. And then we're doing a couple of uh, sermons on loving one another. And quite a challenging reading today about loving our enemies. But also... Um, think broader than that because often um, sometimes the people that we love can hurt us the most and so it takes a lot uh, sometimes to love the people who we love the most so um, yeah as we go into the next couple of sermons um, I pray that the Lord would encourage you as you think about loving and it's a sacrifice isn't it so let's uh, listen to what Louise has for us this morning, um, we, there's a bit of a, a video clip towards the end and I unfortunately we couldn't get it to work seamlessly uh, so I'm just going to have to do a bit of a jiggy on the laptop here so please come forward Louise and um, thank you for what you've prepared for us. Right, let's just, I'll just pray. Lord Jesus I thank you for your word that speaks so much truth and grace into our lives. I just pray, Jesus, now that what I've prepared would really speak into our hearts today. In your name, amen. So, how do we love others? It's the start of the school year, that time when students all rock up crisp with crispy uh, laundered clothes and uniforms. They've got neatly stacked in their school bags, all their little pile of books, all blank, waiting to be filled up with all their writing and maths and artwork for the year. Some children seem visibly excited, while the body language of others suggests that maybe they just come along to eat their lunch and carry on with their holiday agenda. Now, I'm a retired teacher, and um, what I remember most about this time of the year was scanning through my class lists and sizing up all the students who were destined to sit in front of me for the whole year. It was a real thing. And last week, um, I attended the funeral of um, the mother of two sisters whom I had taught throughout their senior school years. 
And Rochelle and Julia were two of my prized students. They had lapped up everything I had taught them. I used to teach history. And they were impeccably behaved. They became school leaders. And they'd always rewarded both me and themselves with fabulous exam results. And it was a sacred moment last week, hugging and weeping together, sharing in the sudden loss of their wonderful mother. But I've actually got some pretty different memories of students who arrived and stayed in my classes who had some real attitude issues. These are the students who were disruptive, they didn't really seem interested in learning, they kicked the traces, and they frequently made my life as a teacher a nightmare with their awful behaviour. Admittedly, there weren't many of them, but they could derail a class and ruin my day. Thankfully, they were actually often pretty often away. <laughs> but these are the students who it was much more challenging to love. And I've got to be honest in saying that I was really glad when either they left or the year was over. And yet, when we look at this passage from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is challenging us to a much more radical form of love. You've heard it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now this passage is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is continuing his teaching on how if we're to enter the kingdom of heaven, our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He's just tackled the way the Pharisees have misinterpreted the law regarding things like murder, adultery, divorce, and taking an eye for an eye. Now he's explaining how true salvation changes a person's heart. And this is outworked in a way we love in a much more radical way um, than the way of the world. It says in verse 47, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Because that's what happens in the world. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? <coughs> do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, <coughs> as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, as Graham mentioned, um, both he and Sarah have looked at Love was teaching on firstly God's love for us and then last week Sarah looked at how we love God. So how do we love others in the radical way um, Matthew's outlined in chapter 5? And I want to suggest these three ways. Firstly, love is an action, not a feeling. Secondly, um, this is loving others is deeply anchored in our understanding of God's love for them and for us. And thirdly, as we radically love others, God also radically changes us. So firstly, loving others is an act of the will. It's not really a feeling. So we live in a culture where love is packaged up in sentimental feelings and emotions. Worldly love is marketed as a choice. 
a choice we make in the best interests of ourselves. Yet biblical love towards God and others is radically different. It's neither something based on sentiment or emotion, nor is it an option we can take or leave based on our choices and needs. It's actually something much more demanding, but actually much richer and deeper. It involves trust, obedience, and most importantly, an understanding of who we are in God. It's not living in accordance with our own natural inclinations and affections. This is what we call agape love, not emotional love, but volitional love, an act of the will. As C.S. Lewis puts it, feelings are not what God cares about. Love either towards God or towards man is an affair of the will. If we're trying to do his will, we're obeying the commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. He'll give us feelings of love if he pleases. We cannot create them for ourselves, and we must not demand them as a right. Feelings come and go. I love Lewis, he's so direct. And it's so different, isn't it, from what the world tells us. One of the most striking examples, I think, of taking a cold-hearted step of obedience rather than waiting for the feelings is Ananias in Acts 9. Now, you remember that Saul had just encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. And for three days, he was waiting there, um, blinded and praying, and God had given him a vision that a man named Ananias would come to him, lay hands on him, and restore his sight. Now, when um, God gave Ananias this brief to visit Saul and pray for his healing, you can imagine that Ananias was understandably pretty disturbed to go to this man, Saul, who was, had this um, terrible reputation that preceded him. This was Saul, who was renowned for his vicious persecution of the young church. Yet we read that Ananias didn't wait for the feeling to come. As a disciple, he trusted God and knew that God obviously had some greater purpose. And not only that, we read that he went to Saul and called him brother, which is pretty radical, isn't it? That must have taken huge faith and courage. So that seems to me to be a pretty powerful example of loving your enemy. So first point, loving others is an act of the will. It's not primarily a feeling. And we're not asked to love everyone. When God asks us to draw close or love someone, we are just called to act in obedience and trust that God knows what he's doing and just to get on with it and not wait till we feel like it. So secondly, God loving others is deeply anchored in our understanding of God's unconditional love for us and for others. In verse 44, we read, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So who are our enemies? 
they can be that difficult, obnoxious child I had to teach all year, or that irritating colleague you have to work with, or that crazy maker, toxic relative who sows division in your extended family, or that prickly neighbour, or that cancel culture advocate on social media, or the champions of woke and liberal theology who seek to contaminate our church. We actually don't need to look very far, do we, to find our enemies? Yet this scripture is very clear that our love must be indiscriminate to everyone, to those who are both inside and outside our community, and to those who oppose God's people. It extends beyond non-retaliation to an even more positive love with an earnest desire for their good. There's actually no one the disciple need not love. The love that Jesus demands must be universal with no exceptions. You see, Jesus is teaching us and shaping us as disciples who will be like a father. Sons share the characteristics of their father. And a father dispenses natural blessings on all his children alike. Practical kindness is offered to all men, even the persecutors. Now this doesn't mean he's offering spiritual salvation or universal salvation. So just like a human father, he might have an unloving, troubled or wayward son or daughter. In his unconditional love as a parent, he might continue to love, bless, protect and nurture him or her. But he cannot be ultimately responsible for the child's spiritual salvation. And loving others doesn't mean we overlook the fact that they are broken, fallen people, capable of doing some pretty awful things. As Lewis suggests, how do we love the man but hate what he does? As Lewis reminds us, the one person we're actually very good at doing this with is ourselves. Because we love ourselves, we're actually sorry to find ourselves to be the kind of person capable of greed, jealousy, anger, and all sorts of brokenness. And we hope that if in any way possible, somehow, sometime, and in some way, we can be cured and made human again. And so too with those we see as our enemies. Like with ourselves, we must wish that our enemy were not so bad and instead invest in the redemptive program that God has for them. You see, it's all about seeing others not as mortals, but as immortal creatures. Who are daily, no, minute by minute, being shaped towards an eternal destination. You see, each one of us is moving towards either a heavenly, holy place of eternal uni unity or union with God, or towards a place of horror or destruction and eternal separation from God. And we're part of helping everyone either towards or away from God for eternity. As Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory, all day long 
we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with awe that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It's a pretty sobering thought, isn't it? In the cost of discipleship, Bonhoeffer, who was, um, as you probably all know, a prisoner of Nazi Germany, awaiting his execution, and he wrote, Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. So scripture's clear, there's actually no debate about forgiving our enemy. As Jesus teaches about prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's pretty clear cut. We're not actually offered forgiveness on any other terms. And obviously the most compelling example of this is our tortured Jesus on the cross the Son of God, uttering, forgive them for they know not what they do. So firstly, loving others is an act, not a feeling. Secondly, we love others because we understand and acknowledge their immortal, eternal destination. And we have a role to play in shaping that along with God. Everyone we encounter is an image bearer. Thirdly, loving others actually helps to change us along our journey of sanctification into more gospel-shaped people. Verse 48 says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here Jesus sets up the high standard or ideal of perfect love. Now, obviously, we're never going to obtain that fully in this life. But one of the great secrets of living a more obedient life is that each small step we take becomes a huge investment in our process of sanctification. As Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, when you are behaving as if you love someone, you actually presently will come to love them. So when we do good to another person, seeing them as a human being made in the image of God, just like us, and desiring their happiness and goodness, we shall have learned to love them just a little bit more. And good increases at compound interest. The more goodness and generosity with which we treat people, the more we find we love and like more and more people. I'm not sure about you, but there have been people in my life who used to irritate me and whom I found it really hard to love. In fact, I used to avoid them. You know, you change supermarket aisles so you don't see them. I know. I know. But in taking those really small steps, and often they're really, really tiny steps, 
somehow the irritants faded into the background and more and more their attractive characteristics came into sharper and sharper focus. Until actually surprised, I surprised myself and found myself unconscious of the things that used to irritate me and with God's grace I grew into a genuine love for them. Now I know this might sound pretty impossible when we think of some of the difficult toxic people in our lives but here we must trust what God has promised in scripture in so many places. He will never test us without giving us the strength and his spiritual resources to succeed in what he asks us to do. Perhaps one of the secrets of loving others is our ability to exercise empathy. This is where we love others because we can get beyond ourselves and understand where others are coming from. We can slip into their moccasins. Instead of reacting, we learn to peel back the layers. We can see the source of their anger, their insecurity, their fear, or their hostility. And sensitive to the Holy Spirit, we're then empowered to love with more wisdom and grace. We then will be able to offer kindness instead of anger, a hand of peace and reconciliation instead of a fist of retaliation. So I want to end with a story that illustrates this so well. And it's a story about some friends of, of John and mine who were involved in a pretty serious road rage incident last year. I don't know whether you've ever had a road rage encounter, but for these um, friends of ours, they, Craig and Michaela, they were on holiday in Italy. And they'd hired a rental car and they were driving through a small village um, when one of them, um, ahead of them, was a pedestrian, a, a, a man walking across the road, and he was engrossed in his phone. And he didn't see them. And Craig looked up, and immediate, initially he thought, oh, this guy will get across the road without seeing, without, um, without me you know, hitting him. And he was quite confident. But then suddenly this guy swerved off in the opposite direction, and they, he, Craig very narrowly missed um, hitting him. So the guy got to the other side of the road, and out of, the, out of their rear mirror, suddenly Craig and Michaela saw this guy um, behind them, um, boiling with rage and uttering a string of expletives and other unpleasant body language to express his outrage because he just about got knocked over. So they drove on. But to their horror, a few minutes later, they were overtaken wildly by the same guy. And he stopped in front of them and parked his car diagonally in front of them so they couldn't go get any further. He barred their way, got out of his car, and then began, turned around to uh, Craig's side of the car and started pounding their rental car. He tried to force Craig out while um, hammering the, the side of the car with his fists and his boots. Michaela started videoing the scene on her phone and that only escalated his rage. So this went on for a few minutes um, and um, then the traffic of course started piling up behind. 
So this guy pulled his car off the road to let them park, to let the traffic through. And they thought, phew, this is over. Thank goodness it's all passed. But to their horror again, um, this guy then just turned in behind them and followed them. And they thought, oh my goodness, this is not over. Um, and he was on his phone, so they thought, oh my goodness, he's dialing up the, ma the mafia. So um, they had the right idea they would head for the nearest police station. So they drove to the nearest police station, they found it on Google Maps, and Craig and Michaela pulled into the police station. They were praying all the time, they were, they were really pretty scared because this could have ended really badly. Um, and this guy pulled into the police station with them and he was still boiling mad. This guy turns up, Michaela goes and gets the police out and um, the police interrogate Craig and um, they uh, want to see his passport, his driver's licence and they start saying things like, oh, you drive on the different side of the road in New Zealand, don't you? And Craig's thinking, oh my goodness, we're going to end up in a, tossed into an Italian jail and never been seen of again. And this guy's, you know, and they show the, they show the police the damage to the car. And um, after quite an extensive interrogation, the, um, the police officer sh um, shows Craig his Google Translate and says, um, you've got 30 days to prosecute this man. So Craig says, wow, what a, what a wonderful outcome. And Craig looks at this guy and he says, um, when you nearly got hit, you got really frightened, didn't you? And the guy said, yeah. He said, and your heart went like this. And, Craig, and the guy said, yes. And he said, um, you felt really angry. You felt really frightened, didn't you? And he said, yes. You felt really angry. He said, yes. And he said, um, I'm not going to prosecute you. He said, and I'm not going to upload the video on social media because the guy was really worried that the, what Michaela had copied on her phone, he was going to... Um, she's going to upload on social media. The guy eyeballed Craig and he shook his hand. And to me that's a, it's a wonder, and it was a wonderful example of how Craig diffused an entire situation with, with kindness and with grace and with wisdom. And as Craig, and, as Craig said, he and Michaela had been praying through the whole incident that it would end well. And by showing grace and by showing forgiveness, by understanding where this guy was coming from, by understanding the source of his anger, he was able to offer mercy and forgiveness to this man. And I just think that was a wonderful example of how a kind word can turn away wrath. So even our enemies can choose, we, with even our enemies we can choose a good response. And I guess the story really challenged me on how many times I could have acted with more grace and empathy with my difficult children in the class. Did I ever stop to think what lay behind their brokenness? Um, I always remember what in one class, actually, I had a girl who was really acting up, and she was being really, really difficult. And I remember, um, I remember confronting her, and this girl showed me her bag. And in her bag, she had all her clothing, she had a toothbrush, she had pyjamas, and she would spend one night at her mother's and one night at her father's. And so she was bringing all this baggage into the classroom with her. She had all this brokenness going on in her home life, 
and it was just acting out in her behaviour in the classroom. And if only I had understood that, I would have dealt with, I would have shown her much more love and grace. So we need to be always sensitive to the Holy Spirit, to understand a little of the world of the others who are in our lives. It's, an, it's always good to pray. It's always good to be sensitive to we, what God is telling us in our heart. So we're all made in the image of God. We're all broken, but deeply and eternally loved by God. We're all called to partner with God with his sons and daughters to be part of the redemptive work which he's doing in the lives of everyone in our world. And in this process, we too will be shaped into more loving and loved people. So I thought it would be good as we finish to just close our eyes and just think of is anyone in our lives at the moment, as Graham said at the beginning, it could be someone really close to us or it could be someone with whom we have difficulty loving. And just lay, bring them before Jesus and ask Jesus to show us his wisdom and grace, how we can love them um, with his spirit. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you loved us when we were still broken. You love us, Lord, each day. Help us now, Lord, as we head towards communion to understand the sacrifice you made for us because you loved us so unconditionally and you still love us in all our brokenness. Help us to love others with the love that you have for us. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us all that we can do through, through your word to live as you showed us how to live. Help us to love others and to help them to be part of your redemptive work in bringing others closer to you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.